So how does a foul-mouthed, party boy, racist, sexual exploiter become a role model for generations of straight-laced, church-going, Bible-reading Christians everywhere? As a child who lost his mom at a very early age, just when he was really just a boy, and raised by his gruff dad, Johnny, was early on his way to trouble. Headstrong, uh, unteachable, rebellious, and even though raised by Christians, had come to the place where he rejected the faith of his childhood. And so he ran away from responsibilities. He moved away from the ethics that he had been taught when he uh, grew up. And he lived really however he wanted to, running away from any sense of responsibility or even just normal expected uh, life management. It's just who he was becoming. His co-workers disliked him so much it actually ended, ended up landing him as a low-level worker who was largely himself being exploited by some brutal managers and in terrible working conditions, so much so that his dad had to bail him out, had to intervene and rescue him. Then John decided to make a living by exploiting other people, taking advantage of the misery of others. And his boss once described him as the most profane man he had ever met. You imagine that at the end of your monthly review reward cycle? Employee of the month, most profane man I've ever met. The family of the girl that he wanted to marry didn't trust him, of course, as far as they could throw him, and so that whole thing was held up for him as well. You have to kind of think frat boy meets Jeffrey Epstein, and you start to get a picture of what's going on here. Now, fortunately, he almost died a number of times, if, and, and that was really good news for him because it brought him to a reality of the frailty and the uncertainty of this life, which I think many of us could benefit from. This ultimately led him to embrace the faith of his childhood. Seemed like a good turn of events. Unfortunately, as many times as he tried to make progress in his rediscovered faith, he failed. And then he slipped back into his bad habits and his addictions and really was only making modest progress at best for a good number of years. And this pattern repeated itself many times. There would be these near-death catastrophes or sicknesses or incredible trials and it would somehow reinvigorate his faith. And sometimes he would make progress, but most of the time he wouldn't. It was followed by just backsliding and more failure, shame, and guilt. But over the course of many years, John slowly began to make progress. In fact, his faith became increasingly real to him and vital, and he started showing consistency as the decades went on. Eventually, he ended up becoming a pastor in a small church, a little parish, but his influence was 
very much outsized. Not just on himself and on his, his congregation, but on some of the key friendships he developed. And some of those friends had transformed lives in part because of the influence that John had on him. And eventually, his name became known over the whole of the planet and was cemented in history for all of time as one of the important figures that helped end one of the oldest and worst plagues of human injustice that the planet has ever seen. It's interesting, John, he not only cared for his flock as a pastor, but he ended up leading his larger community to, community to increasing goodness. And he helped bring global slavery to an end. It's pretty amazing to watch, to hear of a story like this. And of course, as the author of Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, history is going to forever remember the name of John Newton. We are in this series called Then Sings My Soul. And we're kind of looking at these great songs of Christian history. And what we're doing is we're, we're, we're going back all the way to like 500 AD and we're going up until this last decade or so. And we're saying, all right, what are some of the great hymns, songs of the Christian faith and what makes them great? What is it about them that continues to help uh, resound in our souls and they kind of burrow deep into the souls? And what is it about these incredible songs that we just, we can't get enough of? And what do we learn from the scriptures that will be able to point us more fully and completely toward Jesus? So what is it that we get to glean from John Newton's journey in this song, which is arguably the most sung song in all of history. It's appeared on some 11,000 albums. It's referenced in all sorts of pop culture and even political arenas. It was featured in Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, had a surge of popularity in all of the great crises of our nation, the Civil War and the Vietnam War. It ends up showing back up on the scene during the civil rights moments. In some ways, it's almost like the spiritual song of the soul of our nation. They estimate that it is performed 10 million times a year. <laughs> 10 million times a year. And I want to reflect this morning on the themes that make this song so powerful and enduring. These themes of wretch and of grace. But we're going to do it through the lens of Ephesians chapter 2. So if you could open up in a Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, it would be really helpful because we're going to be in that text and looking at some very particular words within that text as we sort of unpack uh, this hymn this morning. So this one idea of wretch, and if I were to explain it a little bit, it largely means that you are a wretch deserving of wrath. So good morning, everyone. Welcome to Beacon. You are wretches. But of course, the song already set us up for that, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. By the way, nowadays when people are often uh, you know, rewriting and kind of covering and editing the song, guess which part they always try to drop out? <laughs> wretch. Yeah, 
Yeah, find a modern version of it that wasn't done by people that actually in some way embrace this idea of wretchedness and they will change it, which makes sense because like we're, we're kind of like that people, right? We're kind of the people that put a smiley face on a pile of crap. And, and so we're like, listen, man, it's cool. If you put a smiley face on it, it's all okay. Like you, it doesn't stink. You don't stink anymore. You aren't wretched. Well, I'm not wretched. You're, if, you are, if you're a wretch, then what do you know? I'm a wretch and clearly I'm not a wretch. So smile and don't just ignore the stink because we don't want to come to grips with the reality of our wretchedness. And you might say, well, yeah, John, he was actually a wretch. Like, you know, that whole story you just told, that dude was a wretch, except, of course, in his day and in his context and in his culture, many of the things he did wasn't considered particularly wretched. Only some of the things he did. It sounds a whole lot more like us nowadays anyway. But it's genuinely true, as you see throughout the Scriptures and also as you just observe the world, we are wretches deserving of God's wrath. I mean, even Cheryl, my wife, is in fact, I mean, you know her, she's the sweetest woman of all, the biggest heart you could possibly imagine, but she is in fact a wretch. In fact, I'm telling you, listen, recently she threatened me. She did. I kid you not. She, she, she actually really recently threatened me. She said, if you don't knock it off, I am going to break your teeth. That is what my wife actually said to me. And she meant it. She did. Can you imagine that? I will break your... Now, I know, you know, I, I know what you're thinking. You're like, I, what, the part of the story you want to hear, of course, is what was happening. But I was just tickling her a little bit. And she's flailing about with elbows and things like that. And she said to me, she's going to break my teeth, which is the seed of murder in my wife's heart. It was scary. A wretch. And you think, no, 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 not me. But, but when we get into the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's what we see. As for you, he's, he's writing to, to Christians, he's writing to, to followers of Christ. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You know, and this is where we kind of get this idea, right? We start with the idea of wretch, but according to Ephesians 2, that makes us subject to wrath. Like the rest, it said, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we're dead in our transgressions and sins. And if you read this text very carefully, you'll, you'll see what he's saying. He says, listen, you're following in the ways of the world. And the way of the world is in rebellion against God. And so the world is working against you. The way of this world, the patterns of this world, you're being pressed into the mold of this world. But it isn't just them. It's also the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the enemy, the devil, Satan. He's also at play in here. But it isn't just that. It's, it's also your very nature. It's who you now are as a fallen human. So it's in your nature. The world is, a, is an accomplice in this. 
led by the ruler of this world, and you, as a result, continue to make decisions with your own will to do this. You followed the ways of this world. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. It shows up time and time and time again throughout the scriptures. It's mentioned by John later. It's the same temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. The world, the flesh, the devil. And this makes us dead in our transgressions and sins. And when he says dead, this isn't like a figure of speech. This is, this is true of us. That before the work of the Spirit in our souls, we are actually spiritually dead in this inherited nature that we now live out by choice. Jesus actually complicates the whole thing for us. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his audience, a group of very nice, religious, straight-laced, Bible-reading kinds of people, like, like many of you, he says to them, listen, here's the deal. You say, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. And all of us go, yes, of course, we shouldn't commit murder. There's only a few murderers even in this room. Most of us, though, would, of course, we're not murderers. And he says, but I tell you, if you're angry with someone, you've got the seed of murder in your heart. And he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And everyone, of course, goes, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a few more of you here who have done that. But you will say, most of us, I'm clean on that one. We get to point at the handful who have done it and feel good about ourselves. Because, you know, we had the opportunity, but, you know, we were better people. And Jesus says, but I tell you, if you looked at a woman lustfully, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And so the seed of these things is in our hearts. And Jesus equates these things because, you see, what we like to do is we like to go, oh, yeah, yeah, you did that. You screwed that up. I have not. I haven't done those things. So you're a wretch. I'm not actually a wretch. But the seed of it is in our hearts. And if you were to strip away your upbringing and your particular personality, which you did not give you, by the way, and if you stripped out how you were raised by the parents that God gave you and the cultural mandates that helped you show restraint, if you stripped all those things away, guess what? You would do the same things that are in seed form in your heart. I love apocalyptic movies, right? Does anybody else watch the apocalyptic kinds of the genre? Or has it been too real the last couple of years? You couldn't do it, right? It was like March, and I was watching like the pandemic movies on TV. I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? There's actually one starting. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I, I love anything, especially the ones where the, where the, the world-shattering, changing event happens first. Like, on, not where you're dropped into, like, some post-apocalyptic scene, but where you actually get to see it all unfold. And one of the most remarkable things about this whole genre is how fast humanity loses it. It's incredible. You get to watch it, and you're like, you know, you, and, and what's really so disturbing about it is you kind of feel like they're right, that they're true. Like, you take away the electricity, you take away the water, you take away women's ability to have children, no matter what the crisis is, you do that globally, if you infect something, you shorten up the food supply, and all of a sudden you start seeing people act out the seed that is in their hearts. And it goes fast. You take away gasoline in one superstorm, 
And you start seeing people, like, people yelling at elderly ladies at the gas pump. Move it along. You're taking more than your fair share. You're like, what the heck is going on? We're losing our minds. No, we're actually living out the seed that is already in us. And we think because we're able to show some sort of restraint in this thing that we ought to get kudos. And Jesus sees right through that whole charade. He sees into the, into the heart. I think we need to stop trying to de-wretchify. All right, let's say that word together, right? This is an important word. Derechify. Can you guys say that with me? Yep, I didn't hear it good. Derechify. It sounds like something from Wicked, I know. But we, we have to stop trying to derechify. There are comparisons that we make, right? We go ahead and we look at another person and we go, hey, I'm not as bad as them. So... I'm not so much a wretch. So we, we're trying to de-wretchify ourselves. We see this picture of God's holiness painted in the scriptures, and what do we do? We downplay it. We go, wait, 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 wait. This one's not such a serious thing, right? There are, just, there are grades of sin. There's certain things that are really bad, and then there are other things that are not really so bad. We can't take him serious about all the things that get him upset. So we just sort of pick and choose the things that really bother us. Because, of course, with that comes this idea that we simply know better than him. He says, don't do these things. He says that lust in the heart is a terrible thing. And we go, well, if you really want to be a stickler for details, we're trying to de You might not think it's fair that you deserve God's wrath, but that's often because we have a lightweight view of sin and of the importance of goodness. We don't, we don't like to extend it out past our current situation. We don't like to think through the ripples of it, right? So, so I'm, at, I'm at Lowe's the other day. I don't know if any of you guys have done any like shopping in one of the big box stores lately. I'm trying, like I was trying to repair my sprinklers. And there's like 100 boxes of fittings. And they're all labeled according to what you need. And you know, you need a certain ones. You need just, I need like three particular types of fittings. Not a single box is properly merchandised. There are just, most of them are empty. They're all, no one has actually gone through and looked through the boxes. You have one job. Make it easy for me to find a fitting. Right? And so here I am. I'm on like box 100 going through all of these different items, right? And so you know the temperature starting to, to rise because, of course, the seed of murder is in my heart because my wife put it there and because she scared me and fear is part of murder. And so anyway, but, and so we, and so what ends up happening is I'm, I'm looking through it. I'm really, I'm like, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm, it's like box 100. I've probably touched a thousand of these fittings and I still haven't found the one that I need. And um, one of the employees comes up along the, the aisle and they want, he wants to close the aisle because they want to do some inventory up high. You guys know how they do that, right? They close off the aisle for safety's sake or whatever. And uh, so anyway, the guy says to me, hey, you going to be long? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, apparently I'm going to be a while. <laughs> I'm going to be a while. And, he said, and that, that's where it should have ended, right? That's where it, but he couldn't leave well enough alone. And he says to me, you know, because I came a long way to do this. 
from California? What are you talking about? You came from the back of the store. It's a big store, but like, you, I know where your inventory is kept. I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like, you came a long way. So, of course, I said, you know, yeah, me too. You know, of course, I'm only like four blocks from Lowe's. But um, did I just say it was Lowe's? Oops, sorry about that. Anyway, so I, I, so I was only a, four, only a few blocks from there anyway. And but yeah, I'm like, yeah, I, I did too. And of course, that's where it should have stopped. But he kind of does his little huffy thing and he rolls his eyes. And of course, so I, seizing the moment, half under my breath, half loud enough for him and certainly for the guy who was equally frustrated looking for his fittings next to me, I say, I would have been out a long time ago if somebody had properly inventoried all these boxes. <laughs> and you know I'm right. Some of you are like, that's justice. We're seeking justice. And of course, the scriptures tell me, love, joy, peace, patience, on, 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 on. So, and so in my heart, what I'm thinking about, of course, is trying to not wring someone's neck. And I'm trying to like, you know, show him that I'm right, he's wrong, put him down in order to put myself up and to get things right in the world for a sense of justice, forgetting that the fittings themselves are irrelevant. And this man's soul is actually eternal. And so here I am, trash-talking this guy. Now, let's say this guy goes home, and he's so upset. That was the last straw on a really lousy day of mean customers and bosses that don't know, happen to know what's going on and, you know, others' family stress and anxiety. And who knows what he has walked in in those shoes. And so here I am, adding that, putting one last straw on. Bam! He's broken. He comes home. He kicks his dog. Now, whose fault is that? His fault, obviously, but it feels kind of like in a multi-level marketing way, like I own a little bit of that. He's kind of like my downline now, behaviorally, right? And so this is a bit of an issue for me. And then his dog is so rattled by this, he bites the, the mailman. And then, of course, the U.S. Postal Service sues the guy for that, and that creates incredible financial hardship on this family, which ultimately ends in a divorce, and he turns to the bottle for comfort from his divorce, and now that he's turned to the bottle for comfort, he becomes a drunk, and he ends up drunk driving one night, and the seed of murder manifested in real murder. And we think, oh, come on, that doesn't really happen like that, but of course we know it does, because when it happens on the good side of things, we talk about paying it forward. Right? We say, hey, take that little bit of goodness and pay it forward in the world. And that's the kind of downline that we want, where everything is paid forward. But of course, the ripples go the other direction as well. And when the ripples go the other direction, we look at it as me having been just a little bit snarky to a guy that deserved it in a system of injustice for consumers. And that's where I want that narrative to end. But of course, it doesn't end there because the ripples continue and God sees the whole of it. And of course, those ripples, there's no reason for them to have to stop there. Those ripples can, can actually continue out for all of time. For all of time. God sees the whole of that thread because he is beyond time. He is above time time. And so we think in terms of little sins and big sins. And so when Jesus, now take that perspective and get back into the story that Jesus is telling about anger in the heart or lust in the heart, and suddenly it changes the whole dynamic of things because we get to say, wait, no wonder why he says these things matter. And no wonder why they can talk about us as wretches. Well, here's the thing. You may not like this. You may not like the fact that we have to go 
from wretch to wrath. Yet, wretch to wrath is the only way to grace. The hymn catches it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This is such a beautiful grabbing at this concept. He's trying to suck it all in and say, listen, this is all about grace because you need grace from God. But if you don't want to spend time recognizing your wretchedness and how you deserve wrath, then you'll never accept the free gift of God's grace. How many reject God's grace because they refuse to recognize their need for it. Ephesians continues with it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Here there is a phrase. There's just a tiny little word. He says, but God. It's but God, right? And so, so whatever it is that you're struggling with and, and whatever it is that you see in your own heart, the wretchedness that you see, and when you're willing to recognize it in here, you know where that story can end? It can end with, but God. But God comes in and he changes all of that for you. He'll transform all of that for you. But God, because of his great love, his mercy, his grace, but God. And so all of this pessimism about humanity leads to an optimism about God, which leads ultimately to an optimism about humanity. Because we can be made new. This is God's incredible gift to us, that by what we are by nature does not have to remain that way because it is about what we can become by grace, by God's grace. And this wretchedness and this wrath is the essential portal that we have to pass through to get to this next phrase, but God. But God in his grace. There are these incredible moments in the life of Christ that took place after his resurrection. I mean, after his, his death. After his death, his burial, there was the resurrection and there was the ascension and then there, there was the reality of him being seated in heaven. And when you read the New Testament, you'll see this. He, he was died, he was crucified, he was buried, and then all of a sudden, bam, the whole story changes with the resurrection. And then he ascends into heaven and there's this, this incredible moment where all of his disciples see him and they see that he is no longer just this itinerant preacher, but he is in fact ascending into heaven as the representative of God here. In fact, God himself and he then takes a seat in heaven because the work really is done. But look at what we saw in our text. In verse 5, it says that, we were made, that he made us alive with Christ. That he raised us up, in verse 6, with Christ. That he seated us with Christ. 
in verse 6. The glorious things that happened to Christ after his death and burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his seated in heaven, that's ours. That's what he has given to us. And that's why we can have incredible optimism about the human condition. Because in the one moment he says, yes, you are a wretch and you're deserving of wrath. And in fact, you will get it unless you accept the reality that I have poured out my wrath, the wrath of God on Christ, so that you might receive mercy. He takes your place in death and you take his role. You partner with him. You join him in resurrection and in ascension and in being seated on a throne in heaven for all of eternity. That's the promise. I don't think anybody's making you a better deal than that. Not today, not tomorrow. He tells us, look at this, this is incredible. In Ephesians 2.10, he starts his whole story, right? He tells us there is grace. We have to remember that. The wretchedness becomes this incredible moment of Grace, that's key. But then he says that we are God's handiwork because God is making us new. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. His handiwork. Some scholars like to say that this idea of his handiwork is his masterpiece. His masterpiece. What is it that grace does for us? It transforms us. It doesn't just give us a, a get out of hell free card, which it does because of trust in the work of Christ on the cross, but grace leads us into the fullness of who we were meant to be, God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. Created by God, formed, crafted by the very hands of God, for what great purpose? To do good works. Often, Christians stumble at this very point. We hear this incredible news of God's grace. We hear of his mercy and we go, yes, I'm a wretch. I recognize that. I'm a sinner. I recognize that. And now I'm going to repent of that. I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus. I'm going to trust in the cross. I'm going to trust in his free gift of grace. Not by works. A gift of God. I'm going to trust in that. And now... I can be resurrected with Christ, I can ascend into the heavens, and I can be seated on a throne in the kingdom. And yes, that is true, but, but Ephesians 2.10, there's a, there's, a, there's a pause here. We're God's masterpiece, we're his handiwork, created in the image of Christ to do good works. There's a whole lot of Christians who stop at the forgiveness of their sins. And they think that's the whole of the good news. They think that's the whole of the gospel. My friends, it's just, that's the beginning of the freedom. But it doesn't bring with it all of the privilege and the hope and the restoration of all things. The world is in fact broken. Our redemption isn't just for us, but it's for the world. John Newton lived that out. He became one of the leading abolitionists. He, influenced, he was the main influence behind Wilberforce who helped bring the British slave trade to an end and started a movement that ultimately made slavery illegal around the planet. This is something that had never been done before in all of human history because John Newton, a wretch, was transformed by the power of God's grace and he became a new creature, a masterpiece 
from God. Created in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us here, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That is your calling and that's your legacy. And may God, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in each, every, each and every one of us, may his, may his anointing rest heavily upon us. May it infiltrate, may it purify as such that we do the work that God has set before us, that we take the fullness of our redemption, our salvation from sin, and we deploy that, we release that into the whole of the planet. We take the fullness of the gospel, we take the full grace of God, and we pour it out in every form of justice, that we pour it out into every hurt life. We pour it out into every soul that is wandering from Jesus. We pour it into the hurts of the people all around us. We live like Christ in this world, the power of the Spirit flowing through us because we are his masterpiece because of his gift of grace.